And so over the last few weeks, I, I, I check the news every morning. I do once in the morning, once in the evening. I usually go through a handful of different sites, but usually this kind of Google News gives a smattering of different news sites and stuff like that. And so I'll just go through. And one day, uh, about two weeks ago, I'm sitting there, and my son, Finley, he just does this. He just pops out of nowhere and is looking over my shoulder and says, what you reading? And I said, oh, I'm reading the news. He says, what's that? And I said, oh, it's just kind of an, uh, a snapshot of what's happening in the world right now. And he says, well, what does it say? And here's what happened is I began to look over each and every one of the news headlines and, and to a headline, they were all terribly negative, right? Like terribly disappointing, terribly hurtful, filled with pain and hurt and, and lying and deceit. And this person did this and this person did that. And so he's saying, well, what does it say? And there was not a single one where I said, ah, I want to tell you what this says. Like, I, I was like, I, I would rather spare my three-and-a-half-year-old son's mind as, as to not be exposed to things. But then I said, hey, you know what's really on here is just, it's just sin, buddy. And we started to talk about the effects of sin in our world. It's not a new idea. It's things we've talked about before, but just brokenness and pain in our world in general without getting into specifics. Except at one point I did say to him, and this one right here, Finley, actually says uh, that, that kids need to obey their parents. <laughs> and he goes, does it really say that? And I said, no, because I didn't want to lie to my child. But, um, and so hear, hear me, the more I think if you spend your time, so if it's weekly, if it's monthly, and if it's daily, you get inundated with story after story after story. And if we're honest, most of them don't, make, don't paint a great picture of the world that we live in today. Now, here's the thing. The world that we live in today is the world that God has called the church to minister to. It's not some other world. It's not some other society. It's not some other culture. That what you read, when you, or if you open up a news site or if you watch TV and you see, those are the people, those are the places, and that is the culture that the church is called to engage with and minister to for the sake of their restoration and redemption. And so oftentimes I find that we will hear about a certain news article or we will see about something happening in our culture and the Christian at times has moved towards pride and judgment when I feel the gospel should move us to humility and lamentation. And this is the trajectory of where I hope to take us today is that by the end, that when, when we read these things, when we see these things, the heart of the Christian would not be, well, we're doing great and you're doing terrible, but rather... Lord, help us. Help us engage. There's this humble engagement and lamentation over brokenness of the world. Okay? And so that's the desire. Now, last week, Anthony talked through this idea of, like, the individual. There's a certain way as a Christian that we're called to live. We're supposed to walk in light, and that means some things. There's things that we abstain from. There's things that we engage with. So if last week was, hey, this is kind of what it means to be a Christian that walks in light, today's going to be, hey, this is what the context of that living out looks like, our culture and our part in it, and then next week will be, so what does that mean? How do we merge these two things to be a faithful presence in the world? The first half of the book of Ephesians, verse, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all gospel centrality. Let's focus on the gospel, the way it's changed us, renewed us, given us a new identity, brought us into the family of God. And the chapters 4, 5, 6 are the outworking of that. And hear me, the outworking of a faithful gospel is a faithful presence in the world. Okay? And so that's, that's where we're trying to move us to over these three weeks. And so that's the idea. Now, like last week, there are things that we need to be against, Right? 
Like there's things in our culture and our world during the days, as, as it'll say in verse 16, the days are evil, right? There are things that we certainly need to be against, but we don't need to be against it all, right? So I, I want to give us a couple caveats on the front end. When we hear that the culture is evil, what that is often done to the church is they said, well, then let us retreat, right? Let us go the other direction because we should have no party to that. But that's not what, what, the, what the text is saying. It's saying, no, the, the culture is evil. It is against God. It is not of God. It's not of his kingdom. But there is still beauty and goodness within it because of God's common grace. Now, here's what that means. Well, let me, let me tell this story, actually. Let me do it this way. Um, I remember when I got saved, I was uh, 18 years old. And in 2001, two movies came out, okay? Uh, Harry Potter came out. And, and another movie. And here's, here's all I'll tell us. So I go to church, and I had just gotten saved. And my pastor, and listen, I have a lot of respect for this church. This isn't a critique on him or the church. Um, but I remember early on, it was, hey, don't watch Harry Potter, right? Don't, don't, don't get into that magic and that sorcery and all that kind of stuff. Don't, don't show your kids that stuff. And, and hear me, if you did that as a family and you like, didn't let your kids watch that, that's fine. This is not an individual decision. I'm talking about a macro-level kind of church-wide thing. And so he said, hey, don't, don't let your kids watch that. Now, I remember just about a month later, I'm a pretty new Christian at this point. I go to a Christmas conference for San Diego, or a Christmas conference for Camps Crusade for Christ in San Diego. And at that time, there was a famous book out called Wild at Heart and a famous uh, author called John Eldridge. And so he had written this book, and the way he gave this entire sermon was by using clips from a movie called The Lord of the Rings, which also came out the same time as Harry Potter. And I remember as a new Christian looking at it and saying, it looks like witchcraft and sorcery and magic. And I remember having this, like, as an early Christian, this internal struggle of, like, why is Harry Potter a no-no, but Lord of the Rings is okay? And I remember even thinking then, as I look upon it now, as saying, well, you know what it was? It's because Lord of the Rings was our thing, and Harry Potter was, Harry Potter was theirs, right? Like, like, we, like, like Tolkien, right? One of the, this great theologian and this rich expression of the gospel, of which we also then found out that that was some of Rowling's intent as well when she wrote Harry Potter. But it was kind of, hey, that's theirs, and so let's not embrace, and this is ours, so let's embrace it. And therein lies a lot of the problem that will come out of today's text. Because a faithful presence requires not a hatred and a judgment of everything that is different but rather a seeking to engage at a certain level where the church becomes the faithful witness and presence to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. And so I don't want your takeaway to, today to be to reject certain things, accept certain things. I want it to be the heart of Christ as we, see, as we seek to approach culture. And then next week, we'll get into more specifics. Now, um, the last thing I'll say, and, I, and we're jumping in the text, is God's people have not always been great at this. And so if you even just look back, I'm hot up here, y'all, so if I'm sweating, I'm, I need a rag. Um, and so if you go back to the intertestamental period, which is the 400 years before Christ came, right? From the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, essentially, there was this 400-year gap. And in the midst of it, around the second century BC, you had three kind of religious parties raise up out of the people of God, out of the Jews, the first one is the Pharisees, which a lot of us are familiar with. They're all over the Gospels, right? And the Pharisees tried to engage culture, but they tried to do it through wielding power through spiritual means, okay? Then you had a second group called the Sadducees, okay? And the Sadducees, same thing. They tried to engage culture, but they tried to do so by wielding power through the state, by engaging kind of these upper levels of wealth and power to be able to wield that and harness that for their own means over the people. And then you had a third group called the Essenes, 
And this group was a group of people that said, the culture is so broken, it's so bad. Let us retreat to the mountains to get away from this devilish culture. And so they backed away. In fact, uh, the, the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, that was an Essene community, right, that had retreated away and then had left some stuff, right? And so the, these were kind of the three groups that were being raised up. And I bring this up to say my final point as we jump into the text is, then Jesus came and said, forget all that, here's the church. And he inaugurates a different type of people to say, hey, it's not wield power for religious means. It's not wield power for state means. It's not, hey, let's get out of here because it's broken. It's church, a faithful presence and engagement in the world as seen through the love and heart of Christ. Okay. And so that's where we're going, and that's what we'll do. Ephesians 5, 15, and 16, let's go. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Let's zoom in on 15. Look carefully how you live. Be proactive in the way you begin to look through your life. Christian, hear me. Like When you go to engage in an area, are you thinking prior to? Are you walking in care saying, okay, well, this, okay, let's, let's give some examples. If you go to work, are you beginning to think through this lens of, I am called to engage and be a blessing, and so I will carefully look forward and think through my work day and those I work with. I, I know that she's struggling with this, and he's struggling with that, and my boss desires this, and this is what's going on, so this is how I want to live. Or do we just live reactively, we show up to work, we just do whatever's told to us, and we plod through our day, and I'm telling you, the gospel is supposed to motivate us towards proactive engagement in every area of life. Okay. Proactively thinking through. Now, recently, much to the chagrin of Mark, where Mark is you here? Where's Mark? Not here. Rachel, where's Rachel? Where's Mark? Dang it. I was going to throw him on blast today. Okay, so... Uh, recently I bought a scooter, okay, because I'm cool, and, uh, and it also gets like 90 miles to the gallon, okay, uh, and so I, if you see me, this guy, a little red scooter whipping around town, it's, it's awesome, and so I drive this thing around, and here's the thing, Verity, my wife, for those of you who don't know, uh, was terrified for me to get this thing, uh, because, I don't know, going 40 miles an hour is just terrifying, I guess, on a scooter. But she's thinking, hey, you're going to die, someone's going to hit you, all that kind of stuff. And so as I ride this scooter around town, here's what I'm doing. Like, because I have a healthy fear of death, I think, and a healthy desire to get back to my wife and kids. And so as I'm driving this scooter, I mean, just, you know, laid back, just looking cool. Um, you know, just little revs. You know, your feet are in front of you. There's actually, it's, one of the things that's, like, super funny is, like, when another motorcycle goes by, they usually wave to each other, like, hey, man, like, solidarity. I never know if I count. <laughs> and so I'll be going, and, like, the guy, and I'm waiting, like, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? He did it. And then I'll be like, hey, what's up, dude? You know, it's brilliant. I feel so happy when people do it, and I feel so judged when they don't. Like, they're just like, cool scooter, bro, you know. That being said. As I'm riding this thing, I tell you, here's what, here's what my head's doing, is it's going like this, right? Like, I'm constantly, way more so than when I'm in my truck, I am looking at every possible dangerous thing that could be in my path. 
So if I'm coming up to a, a light specifically, I'm looking down the, down the road each direction. I'm looking at cars coming. I'm like looking at the light. I'm processing all this information because I don't want to die. And I don't want to hurt anyone else, right? Like, like, hear me. This is the vision. This is the calling of the Christian in engagement with life. Is that you need to be, as you go through your day, constantly scanning your life and saying, hey, what is the best way for me to live? Listen, don't just live to get through your day. Christ lives with intentionality. He calls the church to live with intentionality. It's not just, how do I get to the end of the day and fall asleep? It's, how do I scan my life, scan the moment, and be the faithful witness of Christ in the midst of it? The applications of that will look very different for all of us based on where we work, where we recreate, what type of people we are, okay? But we, we scan and we act. And so listen, the first kind of point is like, listen, if you're just kind of coasting through life, just saying, well, this is what I do. No, I want you to take a real triaged assessment of what you do and say, what is the best way for me to represent Jesus here? What is the best way that God receives glory and fame and renown in the way I act, in the way I live my life? So he's, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, okay? Um, it's easy for us, I think, as Christians, I would say to think we're doing better than we are, especially in our context. And, and here's what I mean. Let me, I want to go, there's a slight history story uh, over the last kind of 50 to 60 years of Christianity in America, Right? Because here's the deal, pre-1960s, and I'm generalizing, right? This is macro level, and it's truly coming through the lens of what historians, what psych sociologists would look at over the trajectory of the church, the trajectory of culture over the last 50, 60 years in our country today, right? So if you look pre-1960s, it's Christendom, right? Like for the most part, like it was, everybody was Christian. Like the, the culture abided by Christian morality, Okay. Now, hear me, I, I don't think that means Christian nation, but we're not getting into that debate right now, okay? But I'm saying you're, we're, we're foolish not to think that pre-1960 and going back that there wasn't the Christian morality was the expected morality that defined everything. And not that we did it great, but that was the expectation. Christendom was very much alive. Now, moving past the 60s, you get into the 60s and 70s, and culturally there begin to happen some things, right? One, the civil rights movement really gets churning, right? Gets a lot of impetus moving up, okay? And so the question would be, well, what did the church do in the midst of that? Another one thing, hey, the Vietnam War gets going. And so there's a lot of debate in the cultural space around just war theory, around uh, just kind of war in general. Should we be sending all this kind of, there's a lot of cultural debate around these things. Okay? Um, you start thinking, even in contrast, you get this sexual revolution that begins to happen in the 60s and 70s that didn't exist prior to that. Like, you just think through some of the things culture. Like, did you know pre-1960, like, movie theaters, right? Like, they were closed on Sundays. Like, they were the true and greater original Chick-fil-A, okay? Like, like, you show up, you're excited, dang it, it's Sunday, right? And that happens all the time. And so this, this is what happened. And then there was a shift in the 60s and 70s. Things started being open on Sundays that were closed. And because Christendom now had an option, do we engage or do we pull back? And I want to share this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He says this, Wherever the early Christians, going back to early scripture, 
entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and they had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated and astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. Now, let me be very clear. Right? Some of you, right? Some of you were in churches back in the 60s and 70s. Some of you were leaders in the church. So this is not a critique on you. This is not a critique on your church. This is a critique on the appearance that the church had in its engagement with our culture during a time when it desperately needed the church to engage like Jesus. And these type of quotes, now this is Martin Luther King, so I'm going to give it a ton of weight, but these are a dime a dozen. As you start studying his, 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 uh, history and a lot of the sociologists at the time, the sociologists at the time, as they go through some of these, these times in the church's engagement, this is what predominantly you hear. And so the 60s and 70s, it wasn't engaged. It was, ah, we're going to pull back and just kind of see how this plays itself out. During a time where the church necessarily had to be engaged and present. You move on to the 80s and the thousands, and we tried to re-engage. We realized in that period, in those 20 years, the church began to lose its influence and power, and so we tried to grab it back through means of power, namely through the moral majority in the state and through government and politics. And so from the 80s into the 2000s, it was a, let's try and regain influence. Let's try and gain this back. And here, I'm not going to belabor it, but here's the thing. The fruit of that time is we lost, okay? The fruit of that time is we lost, the church does not have a positive cultural, uh, it's not seen as a positive cultural contributor to our world today. Except by a lot of us. And certainly by some, but if you just continue to look at the polls and the statistics, that more and more the increasing movement is get rid of the church, it's unnecessary, and it's caused more evil than it's done good. Now, I reject all of those things. Those are not true, but that is the perception. And in our world as we live in today, perception is reality. And so this is what happened. So we tried to grab back. It didn't work. We fell apart. And so now here's the thing. This is why I say all of this. Because I think as we look at the last 15 to 20 years and moving forward, there's a point here where we could get disappointed, disillusioned, and unhopeful. And I am opposite of all of those things. Because I think what's rising up out of, a, out of the death of Christendom is the opportunity for the church to reclaim its role as the answer and the perfect witness as to what is the best way forward for our nation, for our world, and for, I mean, for our communities, for our family, for our churches. Stanley Hauerwas, he's the, uh, the dean of students at Duke School of Divinity, he says this, the loss of Christendom gives us a joyous opportunity to reclaim the freedom to proclaim the gospel in a way in which we cannot when the main social task of the church is to serve as one among many helpful props of the state. 
That, if, that, that now there's this opportunity for us to be, no, we can just be the church and our only sole influence will be Jesus. We're not going to be influenced by that or that or this thing over here or by this cultural sway. You know what we'll be influenced by? The, Bi- the Bible. Let me get a sturdier music stand. The scripture will define how the church engages with culture. And we can begin to let go of the burdens and the ties to the things that cause us to drift from it. And now we can be the faithful presence of Jesus to the world without any strings attached. It's a beautiful opportunity for the church to once again be the church. And I don't know, at least in our context, if it's been around ever like this. Even worldwide, this has been an issue since 300 and something AD when Constantine made the Roman Empire Christian. When he said, hey, now everyone's Christian. You've gone from persecuted minority to mandated majority and we lost our power because it was focused on things outside of the Spirit of God. So man, what an opportunity we have now, church, for us to say, hey, We can be us. We can do this. We can live this and the world will take notice because it's only something otherworldly and supernaturally powered. Okay. I want to zoom in on verse 16 as we wrap up. It says this, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, making best use of the time, we get what? 70, 80, 90 100 plus years now for some of those people, right? Are we truly making best use of the time in the midst of a darkened and broken age? Like, are, are, we, are we engaging? Well, now here, here's what's amazing. Making best use of in the Greek is one word. It's just one word. And that word is translated redeem. So the way you can read this is redeem because the days are evil. Church, you want to be a faithful Christian like Anthony talked about last week? You want to walk in the light of Christ? You want to walk in wisdom, not in unwisdom? Redeem because the days are evil. Engage. Fix what is broken. Find the areas of your life, your towns, your your places of business, this nation, and say, let's Let's rework some things. Let's engage. Let's redeem, for that is the way of God. So, the days are evil. I want to share, Anthony and I, we were kind of talking through, I asked him, I said, hey, what, are, what do you think are just some of the great evils of our, of our day, of this age? Like, well, if we would say, hey, the days are evil even now, what are some of the reasons why? And so that's what, we chose six. Uh, you might have a different list, and that makes sense. Based on context, these are just six. And here's the thing. I don't say all these six to say, hey, let's hone in on a specific one and you need to care a ton about that specific one and we all need to fix that. I'm trying to paint a larger picture. The world is broken and we need to love it better, okay? Uh, and so here's the first one. Truth, uh, truth is relative, okay? And there, there just is no longer an, an absolute, right? There is no idea of what is definitively true and when there's not a definitive truth, good is no longer just good because good could be subjective, but guess what? Bad could also be subjective and guess what? When people live without a, with an absolute where both people, listen, are trying to aim for the same thing, now they're going to different realities and it's not just two, it's usually multiple and so you have all sorts of culture going different directions and never having an opportunity to collide. 
This is why the church can be the only hope for unity in our world is because we only have that one thing we're aiming for. But truth is, is relative now. There is no concrete, and everyone kind of gets to decide what they think is best. So it was not too long ago that there was right and wrong, okay? Don't do this and do this, and that's right and wrong, and we're good to go. But then that morphed and that transformed into, well, do it, or rather, don't do it if it hurts someone else, but feel free to do it if it doesn't hurt anybody else. And, and that kind of ran kind of our kind of moral thinking in this country for a while. Just do whatever you want. Just make sure it doesn't hurt anybody. But I tell you, the shift that I think is happening now is a shift to, no, the greatest possible sin is that you would not be true to thyself. Like the shift seems to be a continuation of that that says, you know what the greatest sin now was? Not being true to you. Not, not living in what is truest for you. And listen, again, if it's truest for you, and it's subjective that way, then how do we argue? Live in that then, if that's truth. And so I think that is the way the culture is moving. I used to be an Uber driver, uh, and I would hear lots of really crazy conversations. And this one, I'm talking, I'm just hanging out, I'm driving, I'm pretty quiet. Uh, I mean, not in general, but this, this ride I was, because I'm just listening in. And these two girls are talking about, and one girl's encouraging the other one. She says, just do it, so what if he's married, right? And I literally go, what? You know, and, I, and my ear turns in a little bit. And so we had, is this a conversation, simple dialogue of this one girl, college student, okay, telling another college student, no, go and woo this man or take, you know, step into that situation, and who cares that he's married, right? And so she goes, you know, they, they're going back and forth, and the girl's, oh, no, I don't want to do it, da, da, da. And eventually the girl who's trying to convince the other one looks up at me, and she says, Uber driver, what's your name? And I said, I said, Vince. And she says, shouldn't she just hook up with that guy even if he's married? And I said, do you really want to know what I think? <laughs> and she says, yeah. And I said, this is going to be weird, but I'm going to have to drop you. Like, when I drop you off, will you stay in the car with me and talk for, like, an hour? And I, I was like, I'm just kidding, maybe, like, 10 minutes, because... My, I, I want to look you in the face and tell you what I'm telling you. So she said, I guess. And so I pull over, we pull over, drop him off, and I say, I think that is a terrible idea. You know, and I, just, I just get into it. I say, I think it's a terrible idea. And here's why. And let's begin to lay out this whole thing, okay, for a while about why, like, you're being defined by and sold a complete and total lie if you think this is a good thing. We start running through history and all that stuff. And then those, those, two girls, uh, those two girls showed up at church that Sunday, and then they came for a few weeks, and then they disappeared. But hopefully something amazing happened in those four weeks, right? But, but, but I remember even thinking that moment, like, dang, something's different. When, when the complete disregard for the other has just been thrown out the window, man, we're in trouble as a culture, right? And this, hear me, this is the culture the church is called to minister to. That we're called to engage with. And it's on our doorstep, okay? Um, the next one is, is discourse is dead and div- division is very much alive, okay? That it's just, and we've, talked, and we've talked about this a lot going through Ephesians, so I won't belabor it too much. But the division across so many, so many lines is just crazy. And there's no ability to talk about things anymore. It's just wild. And hear me, this is not, a, like, this is not, let me say this. It is a new thing that it's this bad. 
I think for some of us who are, are somewhat younger, I'm 34 and then going, you know, some of you are younger than me. You're kind of thinking, well, this is just normal. Like it's just always been this divided. And it hasn't always been this way. Case in point, one of the news articles I was reading this week was this, a lot of the stuff surrounding the nomination of the newest Supreme Court justice by President Trump. And I tell you, man, that thing is full of vitriol, right? Like you just read, and depending on what site you're on, it's either worst guy ever or best guy ever. There's just no middle ground about this new nominee. And this is a newish thing in our culture. Now, if we just go back to 1986, Antonin Scalia, the late Antonin Scalia, right, an originalist uh, in his view of the Constitution, hardcore Republican, was, you know, he, he was approved in the Senate 98 to 0. Not a single person said no. Now, seven years later, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, still alive, not an originalist, and a hardcore Democrat, huge liberal, she got put in 96 to 3. So you begin to kind of think, like, and now it's in every single nomination since then, it's gotten more partisan, more divided. And you see it in the language that we use with one another. It's nothing but hatred and disdain. And this is the culture that the church is called to go administer to, to bring peace to, to bring shalom and unity to. So this is the stuff we're up against. Tom Schrader, he's the founding pastor of what is now Redemption Gilbert, one of my heroes, amazing man. He wrote this recently, just two weeks ago, as he kind of winds down his time of ministry. He uh, writes a lot. And one of the things is he was looking at these times, he did say this, and he's been around, he's 72 or no, I don't know, somewhere in there. And, uh, and he wrote this. He said, these times are different. He says, we live in a highly volatile and contentious atmosphere. This environment is dangerous. Today, almost every human communication has the potential to morph into an antagonistic, belligerent contact. Disagreements can and frequently do escalate. Parents in fistfights at Little League games, flag football games, youth soccer matches. The scene is two adults, often parents or even grandparents of the players, standing at home plate, nose to nose, screaming at each other or on the sidelines, slugging it out. A spectacle on full display for the parents, family members, adults, and sadly, the kids to witness. A kid for one team can be heard shouting to a kid for another, my grandpa will beat up your grandpa. The opponent shouts back, that's nothing, my grandma will beat up your grandpa. Altercations erupt over a vacant parking spot, a position in the checkout line, mourners at a funeral challenge one another, churchgoers on Christmas Eve argue of the appropriateness of a Christmas tree in the sanctuary, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and MLS fans scream insults at someone who is guilty of nothing more than wearing the opposing team's gear. Fans provoke one another, students taunt classmates, and shoppers routinely behave rudely towards fellow customers. This is nuts. And I'm weary of what seems to be the fighting, arguing, and bickering over everything. Life just feels so pressure-packed. If you didn't sense all this before, you opened this email, maybe you do now, you could easily be overwhelmed by the current setting. And I do worry this is the new normal. Running away and hiding sounds like an attractive strategic plan. Circumstances feel out of control. What possible difference can you make? Do you want to serve a role in reversing or slowing down the downward spiral, here is the answer. Would you just be salt and light to your world? That's the best place to start. You don't need to go searching for opportunities to change the tone of your discourse. The openings will come to you, I promise. During the next few months as you interact with those in your sphere of influence, determined to become a model of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Pretty much just live by the Spirit. Okay? And so now this guy, right, it's one thing for me at 34 to try and speak to you with any wisdom when it comes to timeline and what this country has been doing for the last 50 years, right? It's another thing for a 70-something-year-old man that's been in the thick of culture, engaging with people in and out of the church for the last 50 years, okay? And this is his assessment of where we're at in this area. And then again, this is the culture we're called to minister to. The next, uh, and I'll move to the next ones pretty quick. I know we're trying to keep us uh, somewhat shorter. Money is the functional king of our world. We've bought into a 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money de- develops the roots of all kinds of evil. That's just true. The more and more I start working through, if there's an issue that I read in the news and I begin to say, what is the heart of that? What can we bring that back to? It's like you trace it back, you trace it back, and it seems to be money every time. Like Just like money and mammon. This is not a new thing. This is some Israel we see throughout the Old and New Testament. Money driving the narrative. And we know the power of money can destroy The next one is injustice has camouflaged itself well. Things are not as explicit as they used to be. And unfortunately, a lot of the injustice gets hidden behind cultural and political idolatry. And so we can't see it because we've got another lens over our face. And so we don't see as Christ sees. We see as Christians who've been formed by a culture that is not him. And so our idols become the prop with which we view these things and they slip under the radar. May we be an Amos 5.24 type of people that desire that justice would roll down like waters. Last two, Satan does continue his mission. Listen, we're absolutely foolish, church, to not realize that very much in this moment right now, there is an enemy that is greater than any other enemy you think you don't like in our world today. And he, per 1 Peter, is prowling around this world seeking to devour people seeking to deceive, to distort, and to destroy image bearers of God. And he's at work right now. And he continues his work in our world. And when we engage, okay, this is, understand, when you go engage with this world and this culture, you're engaging with a world and a culture that is presently being deceived, that is presently being distorted by an enemy who desires for them to be devoured. Okay, so this is the context, again, with which we go. And then the last one, the secularization of the culture. God's being pushed out, and the new king is a secular, autonomous individual. Where we're now right, okay? We're our own gods, and again, this is not something brand new. This is something you go back in the Old Testament, the Jews were dealing with too. We push God out. Replace him with ourselves. In fact, this is the issue with Genesis chapter 3. God, we got it. I'll be king. I'll do this. And we're doing it here. And we're doing it in this culture. And here's my only caveat to all these things. Is I do fully believe that absolutely everyone is fully culpable of their own decisions. Of their own sin. Of their own decisions. Everything that they make. All that kind of stuff. But I do wonder if the blame is not fully on them, but partly on the church. I I, I do wonder if, man, as we look upon the culture, and oftentimes when we do move to pride and judgment, is it because we don't see that we have been, at times, part of the problem? 
Do we not see that throughout the life that if you want to, if a non-Christian opens up and begins to look at news stories right now, they're going to hear stories about a thousand kids, over a thousand kids that have been sexually abused by over 300 men of God in the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania. And they're going to say, you want to tell me about a sexual ethic when you're molesting young children at that rate or ever? You see financial scandal across the church, story after story you can read. You got pastors getting million, I mean, what, 65, 70 million dollars from their people to buy planes. And you want, the, you want the world to say, tell me how to manage my finances. Now, is that most churches? Is that most people? No, but it's what they read. And unless they have someone on the ground, engaged with their life, that they can say, what's up with that? And you can say, listen, that is so anti-Christ, it's not even funny. But we're so disengaged, we don't know these people, and so all they're left with is to seek truth in a news story. Instead of being engaged with the people who possess good news. And so we, we engage, we move in, we live faithful, we live the way Anthony talked to us last week. Listen, not because all of a sudden God's just going to be happy, happier with us, it's because there's a certain type of calling upon the life of the Christian for the sake of our mission to the world. So I just wonder, like, is that, is some of that us? I wondered. To MLK's words, although penned in the 60s, would they not be worthy of reading as a prophetic word to the church today? Where are we? And then say, man, there is this great opportunity that has arisen. So redemption, church, let us be on the forefront of that because the reality is, is that our culture is desperately looking for truth. And if we're not there to give some to them, they'll find it elsewhere, I guarantee it. And so let's engage. Let's get involved. Now, last point. All of these things, all six of these, they only truly matter because they're tied to people. They're tied to image bearers of God. In a real, just kind of, right, I don't care if money is the king of the world. If it has no bearing upon any image bearer of God or God himself. I don't care, who, money, whatever. We care because it destroys lives. Church, the reason why we care about these things, why we look upon a culture that has pushed God away, right, that has let money become king, that is more divided and partisan than ever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is because those issues are tied to real people, real people made in the image of God. This is why we care. But too much we care about the issue and not the people behind the issue. When Jesus was never about, he, listen, he was about the impact of what the Pharisees were doing. They wouldn't heal on the Sabbath. He's like, but you're so focused on the law, you're missing the people behind the, why the law was set up. The beauty of Christ. The beauty of Christ. I think is truly found that when he looked upon an evil world that rejected him, his flinch was not pride and judgment, but it was humility and lament. 
He says this in Luke 19, 41 through 44. And when he drew near, he saw that city, Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You missed me, Jesus is saying. I'm here. And his response was weeping. Because he knew what that meant was that the lives of actual people he made and created and formed and loved would perish. And so what did he do? Is he went into the city and he took care of business. This happens right before Calvary. Right before the Passion. He weeps over the city. He weeps over the people. And he says, let's do this. He engages, rides a donkey in, and leads his way to die for the sins of the world. Because he saw what was going on, and was it their fault? Yep. But what was his answer? Self-sacrificial love that even the enemy would flourish. And so listen, we, we love and we engage our culture and our world because it should break our hearts that fellow image bearers of God experience pain, brokenness, hurt, and destruction on a daily basis because of the sins and the evils of our world and culture. And then church, we pull ourselves up, we go into the city, and we lay our lives down for the sake of them. Next week, we'll talk about the specifics of how we do that and what posture we take. So let's bow our heads and pray.